This is David Nage with my co-host Amanda Frankel. This is Baselayer, where institutional investors learn about crypto. Welcome back to Baselayer. This is David. Amanda and I had a great conversation with Sharon Goldberg from Arwen. And what Arwen does, effectively, is for centralized exchanges, they continue to be a target for hackers putting your coins, my coins, at risk. So Arwen developed technology that combines on-blockchain escrows and off-blockchain atomic swaps, meaning you never need to deposit your coins in a centralized exchange's wallet. After what we saw with Quadriga in the last few weeks, I think this is a very timely conversation. Sharon is a very knowledgeable, credible researcher, developer, cryptographer, she was deeply embedded in the internet protocols development. I asked her a question about DNS, which I kind of regret because her her knowledge is way above my pay grade. It was a really deep conversation, very insightful. We really enjoyed it, and we're going to have Sharon back eventually to talk more about Arwen and what they're doing there. Uh, you will have a lot of fun with this one, but please remember, nothing on Baselayer is investment advice. Please do your own research. On the other side of this, you'll hear from our sponsor, and then you'll hear the interview with Sharon. Enjoy. The Block is a leading news and information source in the cryptocurrency and blockchain space. The team of experts provides deep, objective research, analysis, and journalism on a daily basis via its website and newsletter. Check out The Block at theblockcrypto.com. This is David. And this is Amanda. And this is Base Layer. On today's episode, we have Sharon Goldberg from Arwen. Sharon, how are you? I'm great. Well, thanks for joining the call today. Um, we wanted to hear more about Arwen and what you're building over there. So if you could, for the listeners, give a brief introduction to yourself and to what you've been doing in crypto for the last few years and to Arwen. Yeah, sure. So um, my name is Sharon Goldberg. I am the CEO of Commonwealth Crypto, now called Arwen. Um, before we started this company about a year and a half ago, um, I was a uh, computer science professor at Boston University, where I'm still actually a professor and tenured. Um, I was there, I've been there for about nine years now. Um, my area is um, network security, uh, cryptography and blockchain. Um, so prior to getting into blockchain in around 2014, um, I've worked on the security of the internet's core protocols like internet routing, uh, the domain name system, network time, um, all of the sort of uh, protocols that are in the guts of the internet, the internet plumbing, um, was what I was focused on. Um, and I still do work on that, um, as well as cryptography. And then when my uh, Arwin co-founder, Ethan, showed up in my lab as a PhD student in 2013, um, he got me into uh, blockchain and Bitcoin. Um, and so in the Bitcoin space, we've done a bunch of research papers that have resulted in changes to the Bitcoin and Ethereum protocols. Um, we've invented anonymity uh, protocols for Bitcoin. And then um, what we did with Arwen was we're building a new way to trade on centralized cryptocurrency exchanges. 
And the big idea here is that, um, you know, as someone who has a cryptography and network security background, um, you know, coming into the space a little bit late in terms of uh, trading because some of the bigger trading companies, um, cryptocurrency exchanges were founded, you know, four or five years ago. If you come into the space as a cryptographer and you look around and you say, why are we actually trusting centralized exchanges with custody of coins um, when we have a blockchain there that allows us to do all kinds of cool things, including trade, um, without trusting anybody other than the blockchain? And so that's the entire premise behind Arwin, um, to let you trade on a centralized exchange, but not have to trust the exchange with custody of your coins. And in fact, the only uh, thing you have to trust is the, uh, the blockchain itself as a root of trust. So that's really the idea of what we're, of what we're building here. Just as an aside, as, as a quick joke, I think you might be the least qualified person we've ever had on this podcast. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> <laughs> wow. That is an amazing resume. <laughs> um, so we're, we're going to get you know into the depths of what you're doing over at Arwin and some interesting crypto trends in a second. But I have to ask, um, how did you come up with the name Arwin? Is it a Lord of the Rings reference? Yeah, that would be right. Yeah, it is. Um, yeah, because uh, Arwen is a protector that has, helps you get through the forest safely. So Arwen is a way of trading safely your cryptocurrency without any risks. I love that. I love yeah. that so much. I, I'm I, I'm a fan. I when the when the movies came out, I was in college, and that was like the big moment at the end of the year. We would all go see you know finish exams and go see Lord of the Rings. Really good memories from college. Yeah, un unrelated to crypto again, but there is, um, if you're ever in New York City, um, the Morgan Library and Museum has a giant Tolkien exhibit right now. I've been, mm -hmm. it's fantastic. It's like going into the, you know how people say Bitcoin and crypto is going down the rabbit hole, it's going down the nerd rabbit hole, it's fantastic, so yeah. I highly recommend. I've been in but various nerd, nerd rabbit holes throughout my career, yeah. yeah. Well, getting into the business at Arwen, I wanted to talk a little bit more specifically some of the notes that you've made um, on your Medium and blog posts. And one of them that caught my eye was the notion of security concerns around exchanges were stifling adoption and keeping significant money on the sidelines. One of the things that we've been doing with this podcast is talking to family offices and high net worths about what's happening within digital assets and blockchain and crypto, the infrastructure that's coming to bear that wasn't there per se about two years ago. And so I'm really interested to hear more about those ideas. You, you mentioned to date, many of the proposed solutions to this problem have required substantial trade-offs, sacrifices to liquidity or speed, limited coin support or scalability challenges. So if you could talk more about the scalability issues as it relates to infrastructure in the space, and kind of why you decided to take this on head on. Yeah, so when we came into this space, um, it was really before the whole market for decentralized exchanges, or if you're really deep in the space, you'll call them DEXs. Um, there's, a, there's a huge amount of activity in this space in decentralized exchanges or DEXs. And in fact, when we founded this company, um, I wasn't fully aware of exactly what was going on in the DEX space. I was only slowly becoming aware of it. So we came up with the idea and the approach of Arwen without really being aware of what was going on in the DEX world. And we came out in a completely different place. And so, you know, the, the premise that, that we're working from is the, the very same premise you see in all of the DEXs, which is the not your keys, not your coins kind of premise, which is essentially... Um, why are we trusting centralized exchanges as custodians? So an exchange's main value proposition is the liquidity and the good pricing um, provided by their order books. So why are we also requiring them to store our coins? And it was a very sort of naive question when we started thinking about it. 
Um, and so decentralized exchanges come at the same question and where they come out is that actually um, trade should happen on the blockchain and you should never send your coins to the centralized exchange. So it's, it's this whole self-custody approach, which is this idea that um, you don't have to give your coins to the centralized exchange. And I just want to pause here and say, you know, for, for people who are listening and saying, oh, well, I don't want to self-custody my coins. I have this great custodian. Um, I want to pause and say that both our approach and the DEX approach both sort of support the idea that you would have a party that acts as your custodian. Um, and that party should not be the same party as the one that you're doing your trades on, right? So, um, you know, all of these approaches take the point of view that like whatever you're using as a custodian, whether it's your Android wallet, it's your Samsung, you know, the new Samsung wallet that came out recently, um, whether it's a ledger, which is a little hardware wallet, or whether it's a, like a custody service like Coinbase Custody, um, those, that's where you really want your coins to live. You don't want them kind of moving around on a whole bunch of exchanges that you may not um, have a good view um, on their security, right? So, so everyone's coming at this self-custody problem and, and looking at the number of exchange hacks that have happened over the years and saying, well, maybe I want to keep my coins somewhere safe. And so that's where we're all starting. Now, what's different about Arwin is that with the most of DEXs, um, a, a given trade will happen from the wallet of a user Alice to the wallet of a user Bob. So that means a few things. First, it means that Alice and Bob both have to be trading using the same DEX protocol, right? And that limits the liquidity to the set of users that are on that specific DEX. Um, that's the first thing that, that happens with this sort of typical DEX approach. And then the second thing that happens with a typical DEX approach is that trades are typically executed by a smart contract on the blockchain. And this is because most DEXs are working with the Ethereum blockchain, which has really fantastic smart contract functionality. Um, and trades happen on the blockchain. So why is that an issue? In Bitcoin, um, you get a new block an expected time of 10 minutes. In Ethereum, it's several seconds. But in either case, these are, you know, for a computer, this is slow time. And so during that time, you actually don't know if your trade has executed or not. And so that is, um, for, a, for a, an asset as volatile as a cryptocurrency, that creates a lot of um, risk because you don't know exactly whether or when your trade will execute because you're waiting for the blockchain to execute it. Um, and, there, and, and, so, um, and so there's this latency issue that we thought was really problematic when we were founding Arwen and thinking of the design that we wanted to work with. And so our approach is really that trades should happen instantly. They should not actually hit the blockchain at any point. Um, we shouldn't have latency associated with trading apart from the latency of like sending a message from the user to the exchange. Right, so that's, that's the really one really big difference. Um, and that also has scalability. Um, um, benefits, which is that, you know, if you don't have to execute every trade on the blockchain, that means that the blockchain doesn't have to process every trade. The load that you place on the blockchain actually is going to be much less. So you won't be limited by the throughput of the blockchain the way you would be if you were actually executing every trade on the blockchain. So I can kind of go on, you know, here on, on different topics. Um, there's also the front running issue. Um, if you're executing trades on the blockchain, this is what happens when you do a trade. Alice and Bob do a trade. They send the trade to the blockchain and wait for the blockchain to process it. What does it mean for the blockchain to process it? There's some group of nodes called miners that actually decides what goes into the blockchain and what doesn't. And so when Alice and Bob do their trade, um, that information goes to the miner and the miner has to decide whether or not to put it in the block. So here's what the miner can do. It can look at the trade and say, wait a minute, um, you know, it would be really advantageous actually for me to, to, to take this trade instead of Bob. 
And so what the uh, miners can do is basically take off Bob from the trade, put themselves on instead, and then actually execute the trade with, with themselves. That's one thing you could have, or you can have them decide to actually not execute the trade because it's advantageous for them to delay the trade. So you have all these uh, front running and cancellation risks that are very unusual that you wouldn't see in a typical trading environment when you actually execute trades on the blockchain. And so where we came out in this whole scalability front running speed question was that trades should not be executed on the blockchain. So there's there's quite a bit to unpack there, but I. I want to hone in for a second on something you said earlier, where the kind of the core premise here is that when you are custodying an asset, you shouldn't have to custody it in the same place where you're trading. And it's interesting because that's something when we think of traditional financial markets, right? When I want to trade a share in Apple or Google or um, that's pretty much all I trade, uh, you know, I'm not custodying those assets on the New York Stock Exchange, right? Like th there's there's some third party service, like I'm maybe I'm custodying with Fidelity or Bank of New York Mellon. Um, and then we only interact with the exchange in order to actually move that asset. So it's kind of, um, I, I know we're not necessarily here to recreate all of the institutional infrastructure, but I think it's interesting that that's kind of like a core model that's carried over. Yeah, and I think, I think that's right. And I think where Arwen sits in that model is that you have the custodian, um, you have the exchange, and what Arwen is is this technology to enable you to actually trade on the exchange while keeping your coins in the custodian. So that's why we kind of sit in the middle here where we look for partnerships with exchanges that will support Arwen trading and then potentially also partnerships with custodians that will integrate Arwen for their users. Where do you think that we are currently right now? Obviously you have the vision and you have the foresight. You've seen this world kind of emerge and you've been an integral part of it for the last few years. If you're talking to an institutional investor, a family office that may not have the expertise that you or I or Amanda and other people listening do, and they are confronted with self-custody and with private keys, and it's a little scary initially when you are trying to get into this world, What do you? where do you think we are in the maturation and making a little bit more moving from, say, the IP world to the DNS world instead of having to put in several you know, numbers to get to Amazon.com and just punching up Amazon.com, where do you think we are in the maturation of moving into a more simplistic, easier user interface for custody? You know what's funny is you asked the wrong person about um, DNS and um, IP because that's what I used to work on before. So there was a six-year gap. I just looked this up while you were talking. So there was a six-year gap, I think, between the um, IP standard and the DNS standard. Mm -hmm. I think, hold on, I have to check when was RFC 882 came out. Um, maybe it was even, nope, it's two years. Two-year gap. So there was that, those, those two things came out really close together, actually, DN, um, IP and, and DNS. It was not a long period of time in which people were actually like, using IP addresses for anything specific. Um, and so where I think in terms of like uh, custody uh, for institutions, I, I think that there's a massive amount of activity trying to find the right solutions for institutions. I, I don't think that we're gonna end up in a world in which people are necessarily holding their own keys. I think they're going to be either using like um, software as a service solutions that they control, right? So it's possible that um, the solution provider will not actually have access to 
the institution's keys, but I, I don't think that um, you're gonna see institutions building like bespoke custody systems um, going forward. That said, there are, you know, there are investors and there are, you know, there's the small number of institutional investors that are extremely active in the space that have been active for five years do have their own custody solutions that they have custom built. And they're pretty impressive solutions. But, you know, what's happening right now is you're seeing the development of all of these custody solutions. There's a whole bunch of different players in this space. You know, there's Coinbase Custody, there's Medico, there's just tons of them. There's Ledger, um, the Ledger institutional play. So there, there's a large number of actors getting into this space. And um, that's actually not what we're specifically doing. We're trying to leverage that activity um, and give um, the users of those custody solutions a way to do something useful with their coins, in particular trade them. All right, so we're specifically focused on the trading use case and we're assuming that the, um, the user has their own technique for, uh, for custody and we just let them use that. Um, so focusing on some of the custody solutions that you were talking about that are developed by large exchanges, do you do you view Arwin as a purely public tool where, you know, maybe I, using my own ledger, um, will want to interact with Binance to transact, so Arwin's a bridge between those two? Or do you view it as something internal where maybe Coinbase Custody could use this as a bridge um, for Coinbase trading transactions? Yeah, I mean, I ultimately think I would like to see it as something internal. You know, where we are right now in the life cycle of the industry and off the, you know, Arwen in particular is that we're very early. So, you know, I spent a lot of my time doing business development, looking for partnerships with exchanges, looking for partnerships with custodians. Um, and so initially, um, it would be more, um, more the user has the ability to use whatever custody solution and they would, you know, download Arwen on their own machine and use it that way. Um, but I think longer term where we want to be is we want to be tightly coupled with the um, with the custody solution specifically. So integrated directly into the wallet or into the custody solution and just have a seamless experience for the users. Um, naturally, as you know, when you start a company, you can't just like do that from the first day. And so we're, we're working towards that right now. Okay, so um, um, one other thing to talk about as well. So you focused heavily on scalability and how not necessarily conducting every single transaction on the blockchain is, is very beneficial from um, a speed of transaction perspective. So when you're looking at speed, um, if, I, if I understand correctly, Arwin uses a two-sided escrow mechanism. Is that correct? That's right. Um, and does that two-sided escrow create any bottleneck um, from a speed perspective? And if so, how, if so, how are you troubleshooting? Okay, so let me talk about the escrow mechanism. Let me back up a little bit. So how does Arwin work? So I've told you that Arwin um, trades uh, don't involve sending information to the blockchain, and that's true. But Arwin also comes with a very, very strong security guarantee. So we have this notion of self-custody, which is you should control your coins um, on whatever custodian that you choose, be it your ledger and your, or your laptop or, you know, the custodian provider that you're using. Um, but how can you actually trade with these coins if they're not actually in the custody of the exchange? This is an issue because the exchange needs to know that you actually have the coins that you're supposedly trading with them. So how do they confirm that you actually have these coins? So what we do is we use escrows. So the user, instead of taking their coins, so today when you trade on an exchange, like let's say you're going to trade on KuCoin, which is one of our first partners, you, um, you would take your coins and you would deposit them in KuCoin's wallet. So you've actually given up custody of your, exchange, of your coins. Um, KuCoin is now holding those coins. KuCoin sees how many coins you have and allows you to trade on KuCoin um, inside the exchange. And then when you're done, you would withdraw the coins out of KuCoin and they would go back to your wallet. So during this period of time, you're trusting KuCoin with custody of your coins um, because they're sitting in KuCoin's wallets. 
you know, this is risky because we've seen exchanges lose access to their wallets. So um, you probably re remember in uh, the January news came out that the founder of Quadriga Coin Exchange, um, one of the biggest exchanges in Canada, had died and lost access to the wallets of the exchange. So all those coins that had been deposited by traders, uh, Quadriga had lost access to them. And those traders are basically, uh, there's class action lawsuits happening to retrieve those coins. Um, so when you deposit your coins in the wallet of an exchange, you're always, are always coming into this risk that the, that the exchange will actually um, not be able to retrieve those coins from the wallet. Um, so what we do with Arwen is instead of taking your coins and depositing them into the wallet of the exchange, what you do is you deposit them in escrow on the blockchain. So what that means is um, you take your coins and you move them into an address on the blockchain that acts as an escrow. The agent of escrow is the blockchain itself. Um, in case you're wondering what blockchain is this, um, it is the actual blockchain that is used for that coin. So for instance, if you're going to escrow Bitcoin, the agent of escrow is the Bitcoin blockchain. If you're going to escrow Zcash, the agent of escrow is the Zcash blockchain. We don't have our own blockchain or anything like that. So you take your coins, you lock them in this escrow, and this escrow proves to the exchange that you have enough collateral to actually trade on the exchange. So this replaces the action of moving coins from your wallet into the exchange's wallet. What you're doing is you're moving your coins from uh, your wallet to this escrow. And then similarly, when you're finished trading, you close the escrow and what happens is the coin will move from the escrow back to your wallet. And so this is similar to withdrawing from an exchange's wallet. The only difference is that instead of putting it in the exchange's wallet where the exchange has full control of your coins, you put it in an escrow where the blockchain protects it in an escrow. So that's the difference. And then in terms of speed bottleneck, um, if anyone has ever traded on an exchange, you probably know that depositing your coins at an exchange takes time. Why is this? So when I take a coin, I take my coin and I move it into the um, into the wallet of an exchange, what I have to do is I actually take it, I sign a transaction on the coins blockchain. So for instance, if it's Bitcoin, I'm going to sign a Bitcoin transaction, post it to the Bitcoin blockchain that basically transfers my coins from me to the exchange. That's what it means to deposit coins in the exchange. Now, your coins are not credited to your account at the exchange instantly. The reason for this is because the exchange will wait for multiple block confirmations on the blockchain for the coins to actually be credited to you. Now, what does that mean? Um, typically with Bitcoin, you know, you see exchanges waiting anywhere from two to six block confirmations. And a block confirmation is around 10 minutes. So you're waiting at least 20 to 60 minutes to actually get credited with your coins. And this is typical for any sort of deposit you would do on any of these blockchains. So that is slow. The deposit pro process into an exchange is slow right now. The deposit process into Arwin escrows is exactly the same. You have to wait a number of block confirmations to confirm that your coins actually went to the escrow. So when you talked about bottlenecks, and I'm sorry that took me so long, but I really wanted to explain like what this mechanism is. When you talk about bottlenecks, the movement of coins into escrow is um, replacing the movement of coins into the exchange's wallet. Both of those actions are slow because they involve block confirmations, but it's the same type of slowness that we have today. I, I want to just... I want to make sure I have a, an understanding there. So this is, it's very interesting because majority of the custody solutions out there that are being provided by some of the more, you know, like the Coinbase's and the FIDUS and others, it's a mixture of cold wallet, hot wallet representations and having a representation in escrow on the actual blockchain of the coin. It's not something I've heard 
out there very much. Um, so I just want to understand the mechanism. So if it's Bitcoin and you effectively are creating an escrow on that blockchain, on Bitcoin blockchain, do you have to execute something like a like a smart contract or script, or uh, you know, using RSK or something on Bitcoin? Do you have to execute a smart contract on Ethereum? Is there something that you have to execute um, so that there's a time and place and a timestamp effectively stipulating that those funds are for escrow purposes only? Yeah. Uh, yes. That's that's roughly what's happening. So more precisely um, with Bitcoin, Bitcoin is different from Ethereum. So for folks who've thought about Ethereum smart contracts, Bitcoin also has smart contracts, but they're quite different. Um, what happens on the Bitcoin blockchain is the following. We do have a smart contract that is the escrow smart contract. Um, we have for each um, each escrow basically creates its own um, smart contract, which in Bitcoin is called a script. So we have this little Bitcoin script that is the escrow smart contract. We take that script and we hash that, and that hash will give us an address on the blockchain. And so what to do to actually transfer your coins into escrow on Bitcoin is you send your coins to that address, which is the hash of the smart contract, and that locks it in escrow. That's the actual mechanism that we're using. So at the end of the day, actually moving your coins into escrow just looks like doing any other thing that you would do on the blockchain, just funding an address. It's exactly the same mechanism. And what our Arwen um, app and daemon will do is it will actually interact with that uh, smart contract that's on the blockchain and make sure that you can speak Arwen and trade and close your escrows properly and get your coins back. But what the escrow really just is in Bitcoin is just an address. It's just an address that is the hash of the smart contract that executes the, the escrow. Um, with Ethereum, things work a little bit differently where you actually, um, you know, you have a smart contract on the blockchain that's actually updating its state based on the trades that you're doing. But with Bitcoin, it's just this very simple script that we, um, that, that our Arwen protocol generates, hashes, and then um, gets funded from the user's wallet. So to dig in there a little bit more, so you're, you're supporting Bitcoin right now, you're supporting Ethereum, you're supporting, are you supporting Zcash right now? Yeah, so uh, I have to split what we're supporting and what we've actually built. So our protocol supports coins that are forked from Bitcoin. So currently we've built Bitcoin, Bitcoin Cash and Litecoin. Um, we can also support other coins, including Zcash, because they um, use the same kind of scripting language as Bitcoin. Um, and so um, that's one of our next coins that we're going to build. Um, and then Ethereum um, is what we're working on right now. Um, and we've designed the smart contract for that, but we haven't got the prototype wor working yet. So we do support Ethereum and ERC20 tokens, but that's not available yet. Um, and then the real bottlenecks there are just, um, you know, the quality of blockchain infrastructure, because we, um, to put it very simply, if you're going to build, like what we're doing at Arwen is building a blockchain protocol, you have to actually like know what the blockchain is. And knowing what the blockchain is and being able to read the blockchain is not that trivial. You need like working blockchain infrastructure. And so, you know, a, a large amount of my team's time is actually spent on just making sure that all this working like open source blockchain infrastructure is actually working properly and is stable and it can be up 24 seven, um, which is harder than it sounds. So that's that's like the real bottleneck for us in terms of coin support and how many coins we can um, how many coins we can offer. It just depends on like the quality of the blockchain infrastructure. 
Um, and our, our requirements are actually bigger than what you would have at a regular cryptocurrency exchange because we're doing a protocol that involves smart contracts on these blockchains. So we need you know, more, more functionality from the blockchain infrastructure than what you see at an exchange. Um, that said, I, I wanted to mention that one really cool thing about Arwen is that um, we support more coins than most of the decentralized exchange protocols. And that's because we took the point of view that we wanted to have as many coins as possible because this is a trading protocol. Um, and so what that means is you really need to build your smart contracts for the lowest common denominator of coin, like the coin with the least possible smart contract functionality. And that turns out to be Bitcoin Cash um, as the sort of like minimal viable smart contract functionality that you can work with. Um, and, and that's what we actually uh, focused on for, for the whole design. So everything that works basically with Bitcoin Cash will work with these other coins that have a more rich smart contract functionality. That's why we're able to support more coins than a lot of the other protocols out there. And one, and one quick one before Amanda goes in. So with Ethereum moving from proof of work to proof of stake mm -hmm. and Constantinople, which should be released today or tomorrow, mm -hmm. um, is that going to affect the rollout for Ethereum? No, because that's um, that's the consensus protocol, which is several layers deeper than uh, the layer that we're working on, which is the smart contract language. So yeah, there's, you know, so blockchains come with many, many different subsystems. There's the smart contract functionality. Um, you know, there's the cryptography that's used to sign the messages. There's the actual uh, block formats. There's the consensus protocol that you use to agree on the block formats. There's the peer-to-peer -peer network that you use to communicate all that information. And of all of those layers, I've worked on most of them. Um, but with this, with Arwin, we're really working from the smart contracting layer. And that part is not changing with this latest update. Um, so changing gears a little bit, um, you know, we, we realize that we really haven't had anybody on the show discussing um, atomic swaps and the way they work. So can you give us like a brief overview of atomic swaps? Yeah. So um, so Arwin's, Arwin is an atomic swap trading protocol. So this is why this is interesting for me. Um, let me tell you how an atomic swap works. With This is my favorite example. And it comes from a movie that I saw in the 90s, which for the life of me, I cannot remember where, where, what movie it was, maybe you guys know the scene, but the scene is that you have two people and it's like in the desert and they drive up with their cars and they're trying to exchange, you know, um, a suitcase for a hostage, right? And the problem is that no one wants to go first, right? Because if you give the suitcase to the other side, they're going to take the suitcase and the hostage and run away. Um, or if you give the hostage to the other side, they're going to take the hostage in the suitcase and run away. And you either end up with, you don't end up with what you wanted, what you came for. Right. That, sound, that sounds like Point Break. Is it? Okay. I was, it, was it a surfing movie? <laughs> no, it wasn't surfing. I think it was like an Asian movie and there's a scene in the desert. I, I don't okay. know. I can't Is remember. Is it bad that I, I'm thinking of the third Hangover movie for this, so I'm like way off base. But anyway. <laughs> I bet you there's like several movies with this scene. Uh, maybe I should do like a study and like compile all the examples that I... Um, Anyway, so there's that scene and you're trying to do this exchange of goods. And the risk is that one side takes the good and runs away before you get the good that you were looking for. Um, so what an atomic swap is, is it ensures that you actually atomically swap the items. So in our hostage and suitcase situation, it would be the case that either, um, you know, I get the, the other side gets the suitcase and the other side gets the hostage or um, neither side get, gets what they came for. So you go home back with your hostage and you go home back with your suitcase. So atomic swap guarantees that either the swap happens or it doesn't happen at all. And that's, that's what an atomic swap is. 
Um, and the reason that this is important for cryptocurrency trading is, let's say I'm, I'm swapping Bitcoin for Bitcoin Cash. Um, you know, if I'm swapping Bitcoin for Bitcoin Cash, I would like it to be the case that if I give up my Bitcoin, I should definitely get my Bitcoin Cash because otherwise I'm not going to give up my Bitcoin. And so what an atomic swap does is it cryptographically guarantees that you get the item that you were expecting to get. Um, and atomic swaps, uh, when you say atomic swaps, to me, and, and I think like the correct implicit definition of atomic swaps is that you're swapping with someone who is your adversary. You're swapping with someone who you can't trust and who is going to try to cheat you. And so an atomic swap protocol should have the security property that even if the other side is trying to cheat you and run off with the thing and not give it to you, you are still guaranteed that you would get your item. And so that's what it means in Arwen. Um, when we say atomic swap, if we swap a Bitcoin for a Bitcoin cash, we know for sure that if we give up our Bitcoin, we are definitely getting our Bitcoin cash. And so that's this really nice, you know, secure trading feature that everybody's looking for. What it really means is that if I'm trading my coins and the other side that I'm trading with, let's say at the exchange, is malicious, tries to steal my coins, tries to run away with my coins, like loses access to its wallet, goes offline, never talks to me again. Any one of those scenarios, I should still be guaranteed that either I, if I give up my Bitcoin, I'm definitely going to get my Bitcoin cash. And so that's what an atomic swap is for. I want to just dive in real quick on, so a project that's been getting a lot of conversation on social and on Twitter is Uniswap and this notion of using Maker and Dai for CDPs. Um, and there are iterations using atomic swaps for that as well, too. Can you kind of talk a little bit more and maybe give the listeners a little bit of an understanding of the innovation that's happening with some of the, the collateralization, the debt, the, the CDPs, the swapping, the atomic swaps? How does it all fit into kind of what's happening right now? Okay, so I haven't um, I haven't looked at Uniswap in detail, so I don't know if I can talk specifically about Uniswap. Unfortunately, um, I'm not like prepared to give the correct answer here, so I, I prefer not to. But um, what I want to um, what I want to say about atomic swaps in general and what's going on in the whole space is first of all, there's this one very annoying thing which happens when you have the meeting of two completely separate fields like cryptography and you know financial markets. The notion of swap in financial markets is not the notion that we're using as cryptographers. And I come from a cryptography background, so I'm using it in that way. Um, so when you hear like credit default swaps, these are different. Um, these don't really have anything to do with atomic swaps. And I've found that like as we're doing this, um, you know, our sales and our discussions and marketing for Arwin, like the, we, we go back and forth, like whether we should even use the word swap because people think about credit default swaps and all these types of swaps from finance that are not actually what we're talking about. So that's the first thing I wanted to say is that there's a lot of aliasing there in the word atomic swap. So perhaps if we had been more, um, force, have more foresight in the field, we wouldn't have used that word. We might've actually used the word fair exchange, which is the original term that cryptographers use for atomic swaps. Um, and so that's the first thing I wanted to say. The second thing I wanted to say was with regards to what cryptographers and blockchain folks mean when they say atomic swaps, there's been a large number of projects that are trying to do atomic swaps. Um, you know, some of us have said that 2019 will be the year of atomic swaps. And this is the reason that I think that this is true. Um, for me, um, coming from a crypto background, there's this really amazing thing about blockchain and, you know, having worked on crypto for, for many years, even before Bitcoin was um, revealed, um, there's always this point in, in like a protocol design or in a secure 
uh, secure uh, security primitive design where you like hit a wall where you say to yourself like I want to do something but in order to do this thing I have to trust some third party right so maybe I want to swap Bitcoin for Litecoin or maybe I want to um, you know do any number of things but in order to do these things I need to have a trusted party who's going to arbitrate the action that I'm taking and so for cryptographers, that's very frustrating because we don't like trusted parties and we don't like them because they are exactly what always gets hacked. And that's what we've seen with centralized exchanges, right? So what happened with blockchain, which I find really fascinating is that all of a sudden we, we could solve all these problems that we couldn't previously solve um, without this trusted party. And one of these problems is fair exchange or atomic swaps. So the, the idea of like swapping the briefcase for the hostage without a trusted party to mediate the swap um, that's really a fascinating um, breakthrough. And in fact, from a cryptography perspective, it was impossible to do this without a trusted party um, you know, before the advent of blockchain. And what blockchain actually does is it allows you to do something like an atomic swap without the trusted third party. This is where um, you know, a lot of people like me get really excited. And that's why I think there's a massive amount of interest in actually bringing this to the mainstream. That's the reason that we're working on this, because we want to see um, this really breakthrough technology get used in, in, in a real use case. And that's why um, we, we essentially started Arwin. We wanted to find the right use case for atomic swaps. And that's what we thought the cryptocurrency trading space should be. So it's a little bit tricky because people do think about like credit default swaps. And it's not exactly what um, you know, I mean when I say atomic swaps. Still struggling with the right marketing language there, actually. I'm just like collecting my thoughts for a second because I think that this is um, just to interject like this is probably this the single uh, most detailed episode I would say that we've done but also um, probably the most concise because as somebody who's been in the crypto space not nearly as long as you have I've actually personally struggled with um, kind of reconciling the mechanism of atomic swaps with what I'm used to from the traditional financial right. world so this this has been really helpful for me um, hopefully for the listeners too but I'm I'm enjoying this tremendously. Yeah, I sometimes go into um, computer science professor mode, and and then I'm trying to to control myself. So I apologize. Please slow me down if I if I go too far. Oh no, it's fantastic. Do you teach classes? Can I come to that? Yeah, I do. I've um, been teaching for about ten years at BU. Okay, um, but back to crypto for a second. So I mean, you um, you know, with Arwin, you're you're not just focusing on um, you know, the issue of of exchanges custodying assets, but also scalability, um. But, but I mean, the idea of exchanges custodying assets, as you mentioned earlier, is a significant point of failure in the crypto ecosystem. Um, when we kind of take a step back and look at the ecosystem as a whole, what do you see as other significant risk or attack vectors? Right. Um, so I have a bunch of things I want to say here. So um, let me just quickly give you the list. So I think um, there's a lot of things that I think are risks in this space. And so just staying very close to Arwen, there's the issue of front running. Um, which can be a big risk in uh, decentralized exchanges. I talked about that briefly before. If the blockchain is executing your trade, that means that your trade is broadcasted to a large number of people before it's executed. That means a large number of people have the ability to manipulate that trade and front run it before it's actually executed. So I think that's one sort of big risk um, in the space. Um, another one is transparency of pricing at exchanges. Um, one way that Arwin helps with this is that when the exchange gives you a price, um, you actually get a cryptographic signature that attests that they have given you that price. 
that gives you the ability to hold them accountable to the prices that they're giving you. Um, Taking another step back, there's this question of the quality of, of infrastructure. So I've talked about this before, and like as a CEO of a blockchain company, this is my one of my biggest pains is the the infrastructure issue in the space. And so, you know, traders may not know um, the quality of the infrastructure for the different coins that they're trading, but there's a vast difference in the quality of the infrastructure. So you may have like some block explorers or uh, nodes of, an, of a blockchain that are just you know, extremely hard to maintain. It's like incredible that they're even up. And then there are some that are extremely robust. And so one thing that's really slowing down, I think the utility of a lot of these blockchains is the actual infrastructure that's being provided by those blockchain teams, the development teams. I actually think that's a big risk for the space because we are putting value on coins that may not have robust infrastructure. And so that's very questionable. Um, that's not the case for all coins, but that actually is a really big issue for Arwen because we need good infrastructure in order to write protocols on top of those blockchains. Um, stepping back a little bit further, um, something that I've encountered as a blockchain CEO is regulatory uncertainty. There was a lot of lack of clarity, for instance, before um, you know, we, we found out that um, Ethereum wasn't going to be considered a security. There was a lot of um, stress for, for you know, CEOs in this space about what does it mean to actually support Ethereum? What are you doing? What are the licenses that you're going to require? Um, that, that was for me personally, like really um, a lot of cycles I dedicated to thinking about what does it mean? And then we got some more clarity on that. And I think that in the US, there's a lot of regulatory uncertainty, and the way that regula regulatory uncertainty is often settled is by enforcement actions. And so if you think about that, as a CEO of an innovative and small company, you don't know if you're breaking the law until the enforcement action comes after you. That's not a good way to um, you know, encourage innovation because you're always afraid and you don't necessarily know what you potentially just did wrong and whether you're going to have someone come after you. So I think that regulatory uncertainty in the US is a big risk. Um, and the last thing I wanted to say was actually innovation risk, because I think that um, there's really fantastic innovation here in this country, in the blockchain space. A lot of the big developments came from here. If you look at like the snarks that are the backbone of Zcash, developed it by teams in the US and Israel. Um, but then there's all sorts of regulatory uncertainty about what it means to use them. And this stuff has been getting cleared up but generally speaking, this is a heavily regulated country um, and um, uh, people are, are risk averse, right? And especially someone like me, I'm a tenured professor at Boston University. I really don't need to risk my reputation or career over regulatory violations that I didn't know I did. So I think that um, what we're seeing now in the space is if you go to a lot of innovative products and you try to use them as a US user, what you'll often see is this service is blocked in the US, North Korea, Crimea, um, and then several other countries, Cuba, Iran. Um, so please, you know, go away. We can't let you use this. And I think that's a really big problem. I think, I think that what, what a lot of innovative projects are doing is just blocking us US users because of the regulatory issues in this country. And I think that's driving a lot of the innovation abroad. Um, and actually, that's one of the reasons why we've been focused a lot on Asia, because there's a lot of innovation in Asia, in the space, a lot of usage 
um, and people are really excited about the technology. And I really hope that the U.S. will um, take advantage of the years of research that we've uh, developed in this country and the amazing technology that's coming out of research labs and universities and actually continue to have a leadership position in this space, which I worry that we're going to lose, actually, because of some of these risks. I want to just ask a quick question. So you have been embedded in the technology for a while now, and you've seen the maturation, you've seen Bitcoin, you've seen Ethereum, you've seen some of the other protocols that have come to bear. If you could, again, not to put you on the spot, but we all like to think about the future, you know, especially if you were building a company, I'm sure you'd like to think about the future and what the future in lies. If you could think about what the future in the next 10 years and what crypto's influence on society could be, maybe if you can kind of expound on that. I think it's just I try to do that on a regular basis because especially during crypto winter, everyone got so down about the price and about the capitulation. And if you really start thinking about, you know, 5, 10, 15 years down the road, which a lot of high net worth family offices typically do, they don't think about tomorrow. They think about 50 years from now. If you could maybe put on your your kind of thinking cap and to say, okay, what would you know, what would crypto's kind of influence on society be in the next ten or fifteen years? What do you think that would be, being what you know from the experience you've had? Mm-hmm. I think for one thing, I want to talk about the short term because I this has been something that for me has been very frustrating. I I really think that we're at risk here of falling behind in this country on on crypto. Um, and I, I think it might be one of the harbingers of, of that, actually, a technology um, regression in this country um, where we just see leadership coming from other countries and we fall behind. So, um, you know, I, I think that, that being in this space, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of like 10 years ahead of the rest of the world is that this space is so new. And in fact, we're like disrupting the blockchain space for how much it's been around for. Um, you know, we're coming in with like, oh, no, we can't do it this old fashioned way. We're going to do it this new way. Um, I'm, I'm seeing that like the real like, you know, innovative actors are not here and in this country. And so I wonder if we're going to see a lot of other technology be that way as well. That's the first the first thing. And I don't think that that, that we're creating an environment to really attract the best talent to the U.S. anymore. I mean, we're driving people away. Um, you know, with 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 policies that, that 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 don't encourage you know immigrants to stay here and things like that. So that's the first thing that I wanted to say. The second thing that I wanted to say is that I think it's going to be a, a sort of a new way of of transferring value um, that's going to break down a lot of the the barriers. The same way, you know, um, it used to be very expensive to do a long distance call in the 90s. Um, you know, you used to call your friends that were abroad for the year and, and it would be so expensive and it was something you would never do. And today you just use Skype and it's easy. Um, so so I think that we're going to see that same sort of like shrinking of the world that will happen through cryptocurrencies that just make transfer of value so much easier and more seamless. Um, and it's going to be part of this sort of like shrinking of the world and bringing people closer together, making it easy for people to transact with each other. And that's, again, another reason why I think it's really important that the U.S. maintains a leadership position in this space. No one has used that analogy before. That is an ingenious analogy. I, I remember, you know, being in college and my friends would go overseas to study abroad in London and yeah, trying to call them and then looking at that phone bill, you know, a few weeks later would be kind of scary. Um, that is an ingenious way to think about it. Thank you for that. Um, 
I think what we would like to do, because as we're wrapping up, and I know uh, this has been probably one of the most meaningful pods that we've had in some time, uh, and we're definitely going to have you back uh, for sure if you uh, if you have time for that. One of the things that we've also been trying to do with um, with folks that come on the show is getting to know them a little bit more on a dare I call it a personal level, and some of the things that we like to think about and we like to ask is what's influencing you aside from your studies and from the work that you do on a daily basis and other things. For me, it's it's personally, what are you reading and what are you listening to in terms of music? If there are, you know, if you can kind of think about that, you know, maybe a favorite book that you've read over the last few weeks or the last month or so, and maybe some music that you listen to, I think that helps people kind of get into the head of, Sharon and to other people that we've had on kind of seeing how they are, you know, kind of processing and how they think about things. That would be super interesting for us to hear just kind of, again, what are you reading or, and also what are you listening to? That's an interesting question. Um, so I don't really, <laughs> I stopped listening to music because I now sit in an open office. I used to have uh, my own office when I was a full-time like full at BU. I had this very big, very nice professor office with a big desk and a couch. And I used to always put like um, various kinds of international music that I like listening to on, you know, just on. And I would like sing along with the door closed. Um, but I just can't do that anymore because I have an open office and my interns actually regularly take over my desk because we don't have enough desks. Um, so I kind of stopped listening to music other than like Baby Shark on the weekends, which I'm sure that other people <laughs> who are in the same boat as me have heard before. Um, so that's with music. And then with books, I, I just read all the time, um, constantly, like every day. Um, I think that some of the books I read are like really embarrassing that I don't want to advertise, like, like chick novels, which I love. But um, I read actually this one book that I thought was really interesting, and it was about the, the LIBOR scandal. Um, about this trader um, in Tokyo who took the fall for all of this LIBOR manipulation that was happening by a lot of different um, actors in the market. And he just took the fall basically because he was kind of a clueless, unaware person who was speaking openly about this sort of scandalous behavior that everyone around him was engaging in because he assumed that because it was normal for everyone to be doing this, it was also okay to talk about it publicly. And so all of his texts and his emails and stuff were found and um, he ended up in jail and nobody else did. So it was sort of like a really interesting story that is a little bit close to the world that I'm in right now. Um, one thing that I find really interesting about this book is that one of the characters in this book is like uh, the CFTC chairman who I actually met yesterday. Um, so it's sort of funny to, to like be reading these novels that you read. They're not novels, they're nonfiction, but they're like these nonfiction books that I read for fun and I end up meeting the people that are in these books. Um, uh, because I've sort of uh, found myself in the fintech space where I was coming from the computer science space and these were people that I wasn't really meeting before. And I do read a lot of like financial novels for, for whatever reason, I'm not sure why. So yeah. No, I get it. And of course we know you're a Lord of the Rings fan with our <laughs> finance yes. and extended Middle Earth literature. But um, anyway, Sharon, it was so great to have you on. Thank you again for joining us. and. You know, telling us more about yourself and Arwen. If people wanted to get more information about Arwen or wanted to get in touch with you, how would they do that? Um, so you can go to arwen.io. You can download our app right now um, and play with it on Testnet. 
Um, in a couple of weeks, you should be able to also go um, sign up for an account on the KuCoin exchange, which is out of Singapore. Um, do your KYC, and then you can trade on KuCoin with Arwin um, non-custodially in a couple of weeks. So all of that can be found at um, arwin.io. Great. Well, thank you again for joining us. Um, we hope to have you on soon. And yeah, it's been great. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you. This link, this link, this link, this link.